All right, I invite you to uh, have your Bibles handy. I don't actually have anywhere for you to go particularly just yet. Uh, later on in the service, we will be looking at a particular passage together as we consider some theological examinations. But uh, this morning we're in a, a part two. We're in a part two on the case for what we uh, term here family integration. We often call it non-age segregation simply because there is a movement, the, the family integrated movement, which uh, while I guess you could say we are a part of, we don't necessarily um, identify with a a number of their distinctives, and so we have uh, tried to take care with that particular label. But the case for family integration, and this is a part two. So if you were here last week, or if you've uh, watched that video online or or listened to it on our website, you recall that we were talking about the principles of spiritual instruction. And as we spoke on those principles of spiritual instruction, uh, I I mentioned that these principles are are those which should not necessarily be... um, uh, very contentious, that regardless of the kind of church that one goes to, whether it's an age-segregated model or a non-age-segregated model, uh, what we presented last week should have been fairly um, agreeable for everyone. And recall that, that we gave three particular principles of spiritual instruction. We could pare it down or, or we could add more, and certainly we can do so. But the three principles that I gave you were these. Number one, that God has designed and commanded faith to pass from one generation to the next. Simply that God has designed and He has commanded us to pass our faith from one generation to another. Uh, pretty, pretty simple. Secondly, that those who are given responsibility are also given account So to whatever degree God has made us responsible for something, he has also, he will also hold us accountable. And we spoke about that particularly in relation to spiritual instruction and that God has given certain accountabilities, responsibilities for spiritual instruction to certain groups, uh, fathers and the church. And therefore we are accountable for that. And then third, uh, those exposed to authentic truth are are more likely to identify with that truth. Uh, So those who are exposed to the, the truths of God's word, to the living out of those truths in an authentic way. Um, I, I, I hesitate to use that word in part simply because it's one of the buzzwords uh, for the emergent church and such today, but those who experience the truth in an authentic way, in other words, those who see their parents living it, those who see their parents um, um, being a part of, of that, well, if I can put it this way, convinced of it, Convinced of the truth, living out those principles in their lives because they believe them. And then likewise, those who see the church doing the same are more likely to identify with that truth because it has become more real to them. Now, these general principles founded upon biblical teaching, and we talked through the Bible last week. There'll be a little less Bible this week, actually a lot less Bible this week, but it is founded upon a message where there was a significant amount of Bible. Uh, these should remind us of the importance of passing on our faith to our children. Not compelling that faith, mind you, for indeed no one can compel the will of another. I can compel, compel another's actions, but I cannot compel their will. But rather, as we are faithful and diligent in instructing the next generation in the faith to live out the faith in their lives, we do so by showing them faith in our lives. 
Uh, we then remarked that as believers, we have the responsibility of balancing between what we might call blood family and church family. That both fam, the, the, the blood family and the church family have been given a responsibility for spiritual instruction. And we need to find that balance. To what part does the church family play? To what part does the blood family play uh, in the responsibility of spiritual instruction? And we mentioned that it is the responsibility of the father and by extension the parents to raise up their children and that of the church family, the responsibility of the church is to perfect the saints for the work of the ministry to edify and love the body of Christ. So the father is responsible to train up the child in the way that he should go, to uh, raise up that child in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. The church is responsible to train Believers for the work of the ministry. And once a child becomes a believer, well, then the church has a responsibility to them as a believer, and yet the father and mother still have responsibility to them as their parents. And so we we spoke of the contrast and considering the two different methods, the two different models that we'll contrast today on how the church and family has sought to reconcile each individual responsibility. And again, we make mention, as we did last week, and as we, we always should, that as we consider the models, most churches, by and large, will agree on the principles of spiritual instruction. Most churches, by and large, uh, age-segregated or not, will agree that we need to be training up our children in the ways of the Lord. The question is, is the model that we're using, the method that we're using, most beneficial to bring that about? So we highlighted a typical age-segregated model. And to a lesser extent or a greater extent, they split the children up by age for teaching and activities. Then they encourage the family at some point to come together again at the end of the spiritual enterprise where the parents are expected to continue the training that the children had received in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. So the parents come into the church and they hand off the responsibility of teaching their children to a Sunday school teacher, to a youth pastor. And then at the end of their time, whether it was an activity or whether it was a, a time of teaching, the parents then the, the, the church representative then hands that responsibility back to the parent. And this happens in churches to a greater extent or to a lesser extent. Some churches um, don't have uh, a, a children's church hour. The, the children sit with the, the, pay their parents for that. Some children uh, don't necessarily have a, a separated Sunday school hour and, and it's just like a youth group and that sort of a thing. Um, some children or some churches, there's just uh, children's church through Fourth grade, just until children are uh, capable of sitting still long enough to be in the main service. There's a lot of different ways that this is implemented, and we understand that. We are going to broad brush in a manner of speaking. Uh, we have to, and yet uh, the argument is valid that, that we can't necessarily stereotype, that there are some churches that do well with this, that there are some churches that, that don't, that there are some churches that do more age segregation, there are some churches that have less, there are some churches that have a proper perspective, there are other churches that don't. And, and we get that. All right. So we're not trying to say here that every church in this model is wrong or bad or unbiblical, that they can't do it right, that it isn't done right. That's not at all what we're trying to say. What we are trying to say is that the model predisposes parents to become comfortable not 
having full responsibility for their children's spiritual instruction. And that is a dangerous thing. And we contrasted this model with a typical non-age segregated model. In this model, the parents are encouraged to stay with their children throughout both the instruction and the spiritual enterprises. Interaction among people of various age groups and various seasons of life, it's commonplace and it is encouraged. The responsibility of education and direction in the child's life is not ever really handed over to the church. It's never relinquished to the church. It's kept with the parents and the church teaches the family, specifically the parents, and then the parents can trickle down that teaching to the children. Now again, this is also generalized as various churches do more or less segregation or um, more or less non-age segregation. They have a greater or lesser family emphasis and do better or worse jobs actually teaching the children anything that is important, even within the family model. If there's no good instruction from the pulpit, and if they're simply trying to teach their children how to become clones of uh, next generation clones, well, then this model is no better than any other as far as raising up a generation to love Christ. And we understand that. It is, however, an important time to make. And uh, we made this last time as well, excuse me, an important point to make. Uh, we made this last time also that both of these models can be effective or ineffective, hinging entirely upon how well the various actors involved, uh, that's the church, the family, and the individuals, adjust their philosophy and conform it to the philosophies of spiritual instruction. In other words, if we have a, a, a age-segregated church, but the youth pastor or the children's church um, teacher and, and certainly the leadership of the church in general does a very good job at, at telling the parents... This is your responsibility. We are not taking responsibility. We are not the ones responsible. And these teachers are doing a good job at teaching and they're getting involved with their students. There can be success. But we argue that it's still nowhere near as successful as that same philosophy, that same good leadership in a church where the parents aren't sending their kids to, uh, aren't being separated from their children, where the children aren't being separated from their parents. And also, where children are not being lauded in by age group. And we'll talk about that more as we continue in our time today. Uh, I'm not going to attempt to convince you in our time today that one model works and the other model doesn't. I hope that's become clear. I don't intend to tell you that one model is biblical and the other one isn't. I hope that has become clear. What I want to help you understand is why we believe the age-segregated model puts parents at a natural disadvantage in their efforts to maintain a mindset of care and determine discipleship of their children. Furthermore, we are concerned that the natural and biblical expectations of multi-generational discipleship are hindered by an age-segregated model. And we're going to look at various concerns today, particularly related to a age-segregated model. We're going to walk through them very deliberately. And then we're going to, after that, walk through some of the um, problems that are associated with a non-age-segregated model, the model like we have here, so that we can be self-aware, so that we can understand where we are, where we're going, and the problems that we will have as well. Because, simply put, no model is going to be perfect, particularly as we consider implementation. And we're going to begin today historically. To know where we are, it's important to know where we have been. 
So where did age segregation come from? And notice how I said that. Where did age segregation come from? Because in our first point here, we need to understand that family integrated ministry, if we want to call it that, non-age segregated ministry, is the historical church model. Age segregation does not have a historical foundation in the church. And that doesn't necessarily mean that we should or should not do it. It really doesn't. But we do need to understand this. That what has become 100% commonplace and expected, not just in the church but in society today, is a very new thing. So let's talk first of all, as we consider age segregation from a historical perspective, about Sunday school. Let's talk about Sunday school first of all. Sunday school was, as mainstream uh, records record it, the most clear and consistent beginning for age-segregated ministry. Sunday school began in Britain in the 1780s by a man named Robert Rakes. He was a young man at the time. As a result of the Industrial Revolution of that time, uh, what you would find is young people, children, young children, not uh, staying at home, not being educated, but going to the factories to earn money to support their families. And you would have very young children in these factories, and they would work six days a week in these factories, earning a very, very uh, poor wage um, in order to help support the needs of their family. In fact, it was not until 1802, so 1780s, right? It was not until 1802, (coughs) excuse me, that there were any legal restrictions placed upon how many hours a, a day a child could work. So we're talking 20 some odd years after the advent of Sunday school, many years prior you'd had the industrial revolution and these kids going off to work. It was not until 1802 that there were limits put on how long of a workday a child could work. And that limit at the time in 1802 was put at 12 hours. So you can imagine what these children were working before. 16, 18, 20 hour days, having no time. They were working perpetually, making very little money simply to keep their family alive to keep bread on the table. Those restrictions from 12 hours would not again be revised until 1844. So uh, a good 22 more years of, of at, at most 12-hour days before there were more st- restrictions put on them still. And for six days of every week, these children would go and they would work these long factory days making money to support their families. The only day off that they got, and this was culturally, was Sunday. Sunday was their only day off. Now, because of this, Robert Rakes uh, saw this. He was burdened about this. And so he created Sunday school as a means of teaching these factory children how to read. He understood, as many evangelicals have for a, a long time, that literacy is the key to the Bible getting before the eyes of people. If they can read it, then they can know what God's word has to say and they can learn to obey it. And so he wanted to teach these young people how to read so that they could learn about God. The Bible was their curriculum, and that's what they would do. They would work six days a week. They would come to Sunday school on Sunday, and they would learn how to read, and then, of course, they would read the Bible, and it would be very evangelistic in focus. Now, this Sunday school movement caught on very quickly, primarily as this means of outreach to those children who were not commonly churched, not commonly educated. Uh, It was aided by the advent of age-segregated schooling, which began, at least in the United States, in the 
1848 specifically was the first age segregated school that came and it became a huge fad. This concept of age segregation. It was a big deal. Now, if you've never done so, I would encourage you to do some study on the evolution of education and schooling in Europe and the United States. You'll find that almost every change made in the past 200 years to education has been done so not to actually help the children learn better, but rather to further political and ideological agendas, primarily as we look at education towards Marxist, socialist, atheistic dogma and doctrine as opposed to truly helping children. And we've seen this in our own time as well. Uh, we, we had huge controversies in the last five years, right, over education, recognizing that the education standards, that the education ideas being put in place are not actually being put in place to further children's education, but to further political and ideological agendas. Now, prior to the fad of age segregation, it would not be uncommon for distributions of young people in an educational environment to be... uh, to range from 8 years old to 22 years old. They were not only learning together, but they were helping one another learn, and they were socializing together. And this presented many benefits. Uh, If you look at the statistics, children learned better. They learned faster. They progressed faster in education in a mixed age environment. The older ones helped the younger ones. Uh, That helped them solidify what they knew. The older ones, that would be solidify what they understood. Because if you've ever been a teacher, you know that you don't fully understand something until you've been asked to teach it to someone else. And not only this, but the young people were, if I can put it this way, kept out of trouble. Because of this age-segregated environment where they weren't just put with their peers. In fact... The statistics show that with the advent of age-segregated education, not only does the process of education slow down dramatically, but the occurrences of juvenile crime raised dramatically because of, uh, at the time of age-segregated education. Is there a link? Many people think so. So Sunday school was fairly pervasive in mainstream churches throughout the 1800s. So, so here's what we find. We find Sunday school, that taking these kids and teaching them throughout this time. Then we see schools beginning to age segregate. Middle class families, however, are, throughout the 1800s were getting a better education. Uh, uh, we would see even universal compulsory education come into play in the 1870s. And so at this point, we're seeing more people educated, less of a need for education in Sunday school. Even those families who didn't regularly attend church were happy to allow their children to go to Sunday school. The movement was very successful, not only in Britain, but also in the United States. And through this movement, society was infused with Christian principles. Parents didn't go to Sunday school, but they're happy to let their kids go. Their kids are learning better how to read. Their kids are hearing about the Bible. The Bible is a good thing, right? It teaches them how to be moral. It teaches them how to be good citizens. There's a lot of positive benefits. And so parents are expecting their kids to go. Things are going very, very well. Children learn to sing hymns. They learn prayer. They learn catechisms. It's a good thing. I mentioned already, in the 1870s, there was universal mandatory education brought to Britain and the United States. At this point, reading and writing was learned during the week at school. And it was no longer necessary to do these things in Sunday school. 
But rather than fade away, Sunday school simply kind of became a place of age-segregated religious instruction. And that makes sense because in the 1850s, we're seeing age segregation come to schools. And so it's natural now. It's this new philosophy that age-segregated education is good. So age-segregated education is not just going into secular field, but it's coming into the spiritual realm as well. Children are learning apart from their parents secularly and religiously and spiritually. Still, however, this was a great outreach. Parents were still sending kids to Sunday school when they didn't even go to church themselves. Uh, the ones that did were, were sending their kids down there to mingle among them. It was good. Things were going fine. All of this led to a problem, however. It was a problem that had been building for some time, but really came to a head in the 1960s. Some 100 years later, with what we call a cultural revolution. And the cultural revolution is the seminal point when age-segregated ministry begins to take a giant turn toward the negative. In the area of Sunday school, first of all, in the 1960s we had a, a popular philosophy begin to become mainstream called permissive parenting. The idea was that children would develop best if they were not compelled if they were compelled the least. That parents should allow their children to do what they would want without being compelled by the external forces of what their parents think is best for them. And through this philosophy, which would take a generation to fully work itself out in society, parents stopped compelling their children to go to Sunday school at all. That meant Sunday school was not just there for the children whose parents were already, or was, was not was not there any longer, excuse me, for these kids whose parents didn't want to go to church but would compel their kids to go. It was now primary there, primarily there for the children of parents who were faithful in church. This combined with the fact that children were being sent to age-segregated public schools And it's not a stretch to see how natural Sunday school became to Christian parents. And by the end of this generation, you have public school. Kids are being separated by age and being taught in public schools. Coming home, and parents say, what did you learn at school today? And they say, nothing, right? And then you had kids going to Sunday school and being lauded in by age, being taught, and kids come back and go home with their parents. And their parents say, what did you learn in Sunday school today? Nothing. Right? And so as it did with schooling, so it would with religion. Sending children off to classes formed a natural detachment between parents and their children as it related to their, spir- their children's spiritual lives. In the same way that there is, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, a natural detachment that forms in parents when they send their kids off to school and come back because they simply can't learn it all and learn everything that their kids are learning. You can go to parent-teacher conferences, you can do those things, but you, you just don't really know. And report cards and parent-teacher conferences really don't tell parents enough. And so parents learn to just kind of trust that the system is doing its part. And the same thing has happened religiously and spiritually. Parents were not encouraged to keep up with what their children were learning. 
They trusted teachers implicitly to educate their children, both secularly at public schools and spiritually on Sunday. And that has led to a major problem in the church. But before we get into some of those problems, I would like us then, secondly, to consider the history of youth group. The history of youth group takes a similar path as to the history of Sunday school. We could trace its beginnings to the clubs at various universities in the 1700s, but more specifically or more in a more detailed manner, more clearly, I guess we would say, we can trace youth group back to 1844 industrialized London, where young men migrated to find jobs and were surrounded by negative influences. And this is not an uncommon thing. Young men, they get together, they're separated by age, and they begin to cause trouble. So a man named George Williams, he was only 22 at the time, so a young man himself, uh, decided that he wanted to change this. And so he joined with 11 friends, and they created an organization called the Young Men's Christian Association. We know it today as the YMCA. The YMCA was a place of Bible study and it was a place of prayer for young men seeking to get off the streets and to get out of these troubling influences. They would work at the factories during the day, then they would come to the YMCA where they could be around people that would influence them in a positive manner. It met their social needs. It helped unite people around the cause of Christ, helped teach these young men things that they needed to learn. It was a good, good thing. Now, let me just say that we're we're calling this the history of of youth group, but this did not touch the church, okay? Now, churches may support these ministries, but this was not church. This was not what young people did when they went to church. When they went to church, there wasn't such thing as youth group. There was no such thing as the term teenager. They were children, and then they became adults. You were either a part of the church or you weren't. You were either a believer or you weren't, and you went to church, and you sat, and you listened to the ministers, That's what you did. That's what church was about. So the YMCA was brought to the United States in 1851 by a retired sea captain who wanted a home away from home for merchants and sailors. It would grow throughout the 1800s. It would meet many more social needs. They would create housing for transient youth. In 1869, they constructed the first gymnasium for young men to release energy in a profitable and non-destructive way. That's what we know the YMCA to be today. It's just a gym today. has no uh, Christian basis whatsoever anymore. But at the time, uh, the gymnasium was a new thing, a means by which for these young people to let out their energy. These social helps would continue and would be particularly important throughout the two world wars as young men are leaving and coming back and, and are displaced. And, and there's so much turmoil in that time of World War I and World War II. And the YMCA was a big help to that. Now, alongside the YMCA, other organizations began to become prominent in the the mid-1900s. In the 1940s, there was an organization called Young Life. Young Life is still around today. Their mission was directed exclusively at youth to introduce them to Jesus Christ. Another organization, Youth for Christ, Youth for Christ is still around today, organized hundreds of Bible clubs in Britain and in the Americas in the 50s and 60s. That would be the 1950s and 60s. Enter the 1960s. Again, the cultural revolution of the 1960s, where um, there is this cultural disillusionment. It changed Western society forever. The generation gap, excuse me, the generation gap formed 
in this country and in Western society like we'd never seen it before. Children stopped listening to parents and they saw the former generation as their enemy. They began not listening, not only to what parents had to say, but to that entire generation. They rejected the ideals of the entire generation. Now, Pastor, you're broad brushing. Okay, you can, you can say I'm broad brushing, but uh, we understand the cultural revolution in the Western civilization to be a seminal movement in world history. Just because you grew up in the 60s and you didn't do this doesn't mean it didn't happen. And I know you know that, but we need to be careful that when, when we recognize that something is being broad brushed, that we're recognizing a large movement here. We're recognizing something that history records as, as having been very broad and very impactful. So this generation rejected their parents' generation from their traditions to their morality, even to their religion and churches. And you can perhaps infer the connection between nearly 100 years of age-segregated ministry and public schooling, whether that's Sunday school or public schools, secular or religious, and this new cultural revolution, this new generational disillusionment. We could trace it. We could trace it to uh, economic factors. We can trace it to um, um, political factors. We can t- trace it to uh, factors in, in the media and culture. We, we could trace all of that, and many books have done so. You can certainly do the research if you'd like. Out of this disillusionment became a, an urgent problem for the church, however. The problem with the church is that this new generation didn't want it. They had rejected their parents' church. They had rejected their parents' religion. And so there is this tremendous gap in the church. The old people are there. The young people don't want it. And in order to alleviate this problem, ministers became convinced that they needed specialized ministries for the youth, for this new category which was called teenager, a word which did not exist before the second half of the 20th century. Ironically, in this period, these so-called teenagers, the teenager being defined as a, a young person who has, uh, who's transitioning into adulthood, oftentimes we would say today they have the responsibility or they have, they have the privileges of an adult without the responsibility. Ironically, these new teenagers were acting far more like children than any of the generations before them. They didn't appreciate what their parents had done for them. They rejected it wholesale. When 150 years earlier, you had children going to work for 18 hours a day, making pittance just so that they can put food on the table of their families. Now these kids are riding in the streets, whining. How far had society fallen when once children assumed the responsibility for aiding their family and now they reject the family who had done so much for them? So instead of churches, and this is the problem here, identify the problem. Instead of churches doubling down on the need for family unity, instead of churches seeking to help parents understand how to unify their family, how to draw their children in, how to engage their children, instead of parents seeking to, excuse me, churches seeking to unify, they allowed the youth to maintain their disillusionment and instead created a church for youth separate from the church for adults. Many of these youth pastors that were hired, see, because there was no such thing as a youth pastor before. And these ministers said, who is it that we can hire that can understand how to minister to youth? Well, who did they hire? They hired former workers at the YMCA, 
Young Life, Youth for Christ. Ministries that had been tailored to young people for, gener- for, for ge- at least a generation. And so they say, okay, these people get it. These people understand how to minister to youth. They become this new position called the youth pastor. How to guide these youth. These youth who have been disillusioned from their parents and their parents' generation. How to guide them so that the church doesn't lose them. And things only got worse from there as the younger generation divided more and more from their parents. This combined with Sunday school, which had become a norm, and public school, which had become a norm. Remember, the homeschooling movement was nothing in the 60s. There was really, uh, the, the, the concept was, was perhaps, perhaps in the very smallest of infancy, but it would not catch on for another 20 years, 30 years. And so we're talking about a wholesale Generation that's public schooled, wholesale generations that have been sending their kids away to Sunday school. Now you're sending your youth away to youth group. Multi-generational instruction becomes a rarity. From toddler up through adulthood, these kids are sent by their age group to learn with only their age group every day of the week. And appreciation for the faith of our fathers falls away. Today, the strike, the, the fallout is striking and it's irrefutable. If you look at the statistics, I have been relying upon the statistics of Answers in Genesis. They have a, a book that they've written called Already Gone, talking about the statistics of young people leaving the church. Nearly 50% of teens in the United States have attended church-related services or activities. More than three-quarter of these teens, three-fourths, 75%, talk about faith with their friends. Three-fifths of teens, that's 60%, attend youth group at least one time in a typical three-month period. And one-third, 33% of teens, participate in Christian clubs at school. This is a good thing, right? All of those are good statistics, Pastor. Something's working, right? Let me continue. Of those teens, those teens that would call themselves actively involved in church, as they grow into early adulthood, something happens. In that same survey, 61% of regular church attendees in their youth said they were now spiritually disengaged. 61%. Only 20% maintained the same level of commitment. That's 81... uh, um, Um, excuse me, only 20% have maintained the same level of commitment. Of that group that disengaged, the group that disengaged, so the 61% that disengaged, of that group, 95% of them attended church in elementary school and middle school, 55% attended in high school, and 11% continued into college. What that means, brothers and sisters in Christ, 40% of young people in our churches are lost between the ages of 12 and 14. 40% are lost between the ages of 12 and 14. Another 34% between the ages of 18 and 20. Now, the study I referenced concluded that the biggest problem was that young people aren't being taught. And they actually pinpointed Sunday school as the problem. That they, they're being taught in Sunday school that all of this is like fairy tales. 
And then they're going to school during the week and being taught real facts. But I believe that's only a small part of the problem. I, I, I certainly agree that many churches are failing to educate, are failing to uh, use reason, and, and not in, an, in a, a faithless way, but in a way of taking our faith and, and showing that it, it is a reasonable faith, of teaching the truths of God's word and not apologizing for them. But only in part. Because most of the sound Bible teaching a child receives in his life should not come from his church. It should come from his home. From life, from parents, from elders. The church is only a part of that spiritual instruction. And knowing what we know now, uh, the history that I've given you, and by the way, I've given you such a very small portion of a topic that you really ought to study more if you have not. Could it be that the problem is more the mindset of the church, the mindset of parents as it relates to raising our children, than it is just explicitly that churches haven't done the best job of teaching? Now, all of this information is intended to first establish that family-integrated ministry uh, is a historical church model. Before the late 1700s, you didn't have Sunday school. Before the mid-1800s, you did not have anything for youth, uh, a teenage realm that was different from anyone else. And before the 1960s, youth group and the word teenager didn't even exist. The model of non-age segregation is the outlier today, but it has been the church's primary method of worship and ministry for the majority of its nearly 2,000-year existence. But as we've spoken of the history of age segregation and age-specific ministry, perhaps some other concerns have arisen in your mind, as it does mine. And so next we're going to talk about what we'll call the problems related to age-segregated ministry. Some of the problems that, that are related to age-segregated ministry as it was formed, as it has developed, and as we see it today. And this really forms the basis for our concern. The basis for why we have rejected this model. We've not rejected the people in this model. We've not rejected uh, their church, these churches wholesale. We simply do not believe that this model is best. And first we're going to consider the historical problems. Now I've given you the history. I've given you the history of age-segregated ministries. Age-segregated ministry, we have mentioned, is foreign to the work of the church as recorded in the majority of history. This is not enough in itself to reject it. Needs change with culture, society, and time. Truth does not change, but needs do. We use a projector today. That's helpful to people. And it's something that can be helpful to churches. This is something that was resisted by many. Church pianos and organs used to be heresy if you brought a piano or an organ into your church building. That changed with time. We understand that. As long as methods remain true to biblical form and biblical truth, we understand that there is latitude given in the Word of God as to how churches conduct their ministries. But historically, beyond just its infancy, consider with me the philosophies that were foundational to age-segregated ministry. 
Ministering to the needs of those who have no other means of education. That is a worthy goal. Helping young people learn to read so that they can learn how to read their Bibles. Learn to write so that they can write uh, um, and communicate to others. This is a worthy goal. Something that, that it's not a mandate of Christ, but it's not a bad thing for the church to be doing. Using the Bible as the curriculum, teaching these kids to read and write, their learning of God at the same time, that, that is a good thing. But as it relates to today's young people, separating them from the education of their parents, segregating them by age, are both philosophies rooted in problematic ideologies. May I say specifically, rooted in humanism and Marxism. The desire to ensure that culture and the state have a greater influence upon your children than you do undergirded a great deal of the motivation for age-segregated ministry. You don't believe me? Look at the history. Look at what men like John Dewey truly believed. You can read about how they were delighted that they had control over kids during the week because they knew that by doing so, the state and culture would have, would, would have increasingly more influence over children than their parents. And if you look at any Marxist ideology, whether it's reading Karl Marx, whether it's uh, reading his those who have come after him, you'll find that one of the foundational problems that Marxists have with society is family. And of course, God. Marxist is an inherently atheistic ideology. In the church, this leads the church to having a greater influence on children spiritually than their parents, right? So if if the point of age segregation in society, in secular society, was to give the, the state more influence and culture more influence than parents over these children, then does it not naturally follow or would it not naturally follow that barring a, a, a strong resistance or, or strong guards put in place? We might find that a church has more influence over a child's spiritual direction than his parents. And for some of you, you're saying, yeah, that's a good thing. My parents weren't good Christians. And the church's influence over me had a a, a tremendously positive effect. But really, philosophically, is that what we want? When one considers how little time is actually spent in church instruction in a Sunday school or a a church environment. Is that really what we want, the church having more influence spiritually over our children than we have? Historically, removing children from their parents and congregating children by age group has isolated children and made them more susceptible to socialization to culture. It limits their experience to those shared among others of their own age rather than learning from the successes and failures of a previous generation. Youth group has come out of this movement, has come out of these philosophies. And what we have to ask ourselves is, if the tree from which these philosophies have grown is less than best, if not wholly evil, then can we really say this is the best way for our churches? 
to progress. This is the best ministry model for our churches. How can the fruit of such motivations and ideologies be considered by God's people the best way? So that's the historical problems. Let's talk about the practical problems. The practical problems to age-segregated ministries. And firstly, as we think about this, how is it that we connect physical and mental maturity to spiritual maturity? Have you ever wondered this? As you've sent your child off to a Sunday school, if you've ever been in an age-segregated ministry, as I'm sure most of you have, have you ever wondered this as you sent your kids away? How is it that I am comparing my child's physical and mental development stages to their spiritual development stages? It's one thing to say that most children learn to read between the ages of four and six. And so we target that particular time in their life as the benchmark for when they're going to learn how to read because their mind is developing at a similar rate to most children's minds. And we know that that's just a, a general template, right? There are some children that are a little bit slower on the uptake and, but when they get it, they get it. And then there are other children who, um, are, are much faster and, and, and they are, are picking up reading well before their peers. But can we say this at all in the spiritual realm? I mean, have you ever looked at a study that says, well, after a person is a born-again believer, after they've accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior, in the first one to two years of their born-again life, you should expect them to be believing this about the Bible. And then by by the fifth birthday of their salvation, you should be expecting this to, that them to know this and to be believing this about the Bible. And by the, the year 10, they should be mature in the faith and they should have uh, the, the faith the size of a mustard seed that can move mountains and... and can we really, can anybody pinpoint any sort of a trend like that in the church? That in, in the soul of a man? Is it practical to lump children together for spiritual instruction based upon physical benchmarks? Wouldn't it be far more reasonable to have one class for unbelievers? They come into the church and, okay, Johnny, you're going to go to the class of unbelievers. And then we have someone, oh yeah, they've been saved in the last five years or in the last two years or in the last six months. So we're going to put them in the new believers class and we're going to instruct them, which many churches have new believers classes, right? And then, okay, these are people that they know their Bible well, they've read through the Bible, they they have a a solid um, uh, prayer life and and, uh, a good routine of reading the Bible. So we lot them as more mature and we're going to put them in, in the mature class. Wouldn't that make more sense? And you say, well, pastor, that, that's logistically silly. Yes, it is. It is. It's silly for us to try to do that, to try to say, well, you're an unbeliever. Who am I to judge that? Now, if they come out and they say, I'm an unbeliever, okay, well, we've got some work to do. Well, you're a young believer, so clearly you need to be in this spiritual maturity level. It's very difficult to lot people's spiritual maturity into categories. And so what do we do instead? Well, Johnny, you're six years old. You've been saved for a year and a half. But you go on and be with the six-year-olds where he plays with glitter. And he pastes things on paper. And he's not encouraged to grow. And then he gets to eight years old. And he gets to ten years old. And he gets to twelve years old. And there's still so many spiritually immature kids 
that they're still not teaching him anything of consequence, and he's stagnating spiritually when he could be growing by leaps and bounds. And by the time he's been saved for six years, other kids are just getting saved, and yet they're all being lauded in together. Practically speaking, none of this makes any sense, does it? I remember when I was in college interning at a Christian day camp. And I was a, I was not a, a counselor, I was the assistant director. And so I filled in for some of the counselors when they had to be gone and I would teach these young people their, their lessons. And I was amazed at how much these young people, as I pushed their understanding of spiritual concepts, I was amazed at how much they could pick up on and the insight to their answers. But they were never being pushed. And how can we? How can I push young people to excel when I've got other young people that haven't even accepted Christ yet? But you know who could? Their parents. Why should we limit young people's spiritual growth by arbitrary metrics such as age? It's a practical problem, isn't it? Historical problems, practical problems. Let's talk about the natural problem. What do I mean by the natural problem? And what I mean by this is that there are problems which are introduced by age-segregated mindsets simply through human nature. There are certain things that segregating our children from us, from our parents, in society, whether you're talking about public school or whether you're talking about church, does on a subconscious level that we don't want happening. First, let's talk about parental responsibility. Last week we made it clear that it is the biblical responsibility of parents to raise their children. When it comes down to it, what your children learn, whether that's secularly, whether your children learn reading, writing, and arithmetic, that is your responsibility, not the government's, not the state's, not the society's. It's your responsibility. Likewise, Biblically, what your child learns biblically, their faith, that is your responsibility, not your churches, not a Sunday school teacher's, and not a youth group's responsibility. Now, there is no orthodox and reasonable age-segregated ministry that would state by any means that their purpose is to separate children from their parents or to encourage parents not to take an active role in their children's spiritual lives. But to some degree or another, this happens by default. It happens subconsciously. Go to any public school teacher. I grew up in public schools, uh, and, and I can attest to this from, from both the, the uh, student perspective as well as having uh, been worked very closely in Wright County here with teachers. You go to any public school, and you talk to public school teachers, and they will tell you that they wish parents would be more involved in their children's education. Why? Well, because society has conditioned parents to send their kids away to school and to expect them to come back knowing stuff. So much so that two years ago, when I was on a Wright County advisory board to uh, the... Wright County curriculum, they were setting the curriculum for the next, I believe it was 10 years, and uh, what their goals would be and such, and evaluating it and everything, and I was on that advisory board, one of, I think, some 50 people uh, that were on that advisory board. So much so that when we were talking about what 
the schools needed to teach, there were teachers in our small groups who were saying, we need to teach these kids how to make their beds, how to brush their teeth, how to put on deodorant. Because parents aren't teaching their children things anymore. Why? Because we've been a society that is conditioned to believe that we send our kids off to these schools and that's what we pay them to do. Now, I'm not saying all parents are that way. My parents weren't that way. We were public schooled. They took an active involvement in our education. But I can tell you this. My parents were at every parent-teacher meeting. They looked at my report card closely. They asked to see my test scores. But I can tell you they still really didn't know how much I was learning. They didn't. And I can attest to that fact simply by knowing what I was learning and what they thought I was learning. How much they thought I knew and how much I knew I knew. How many times I was able to skate by with good grades but not actually learn the material simply because there wasn't enough time for the teachers to hold me accountable and I knew, as all children do, how to game the system. Even without cheating. I mean, we're just talking about gaming the system. Not talking about cheating. Not talking about immoral. I'm just talking about lazy. Talking about Minimal work, maximum reward. So let's carry this over into the spiritual, can we? How much does any parent really know about what his children is learn uh, his children are learning in Sunday school and in youth group? How much do they care? You send your kids off to public school, you bring them back. You send your kids off to youth group, you bring them back. It's kind of the same idea. You trust the teachers to teach the things that are most necessary. Are we conditioning parents, even against their deeper desires and goals, and against our deeper desires and goals, are we subconsciously conditioning parents to trust the church to raise our children spiritually? And that brings up other questions, right? What qualifies these Sunday school teachers? How many times have I been in a church where, how many times have I seen pastors who, who have, who have, and I've seen this on several occasions, they've come up to somebody who just joined the church and they say, I hear you went to Bible college. Yes, I did. Would you become a Sunday school teacher? Are you gonna see what they know? Well, it's okay. It's just kids. You don't need to know much. Wait a minute. Shouldn't our young people, if we're going to separate If we're going to separate them from their parents, shouldn't Sunday school teachers and youth pastors be the most spiritually mature, stable, and focused visionaries in our church? Shouldn't they be the ones that have the best capacity to express truth so that they can express truth at these most important ages? And yet we're taking whoever just... Assistant pastors are on their knees begging for Sunday school teachers. We'll take whoever we can get, whoever's willing to just be a part of a ministry. Wait a minute. There's problems here. Well, it doesn't matter, pastor. All they have to do is tell the kids that Noah was a man and that he got his... his. Uh, uh, instructions from the Lord and he built a boat and the animals went into the boat and then they came out 40 days and 40 nights later. That's all they need to know, right? We just need to slap that stuff on a flannel graph and these kids go away saying, yeah, Noah was a, a man who loved God and animals came on the boat two by two and they survived a flood. And if that's what your children leave church believing about the lesson of Noah's Ark, they missed it. 
They didn't actually learn anything about what the Bible has to say. They learned a nice story, but they didn't learn about the Bible. Because what the Bible tells us is that the the lesson of Noah's Ark is a lesson of judgment and belief. That there was an entire world of people who refused to listen to the truths of God's Word. And there was only one man and his wife and his children, his three children and their wives. Eight people who had enough faith in the message of God that they got onto that boat. And everybody else could have gotten onto that boat, but they didn't get onto that boat. And because they didn't get onto that boat, they died. And everything died. And God judged the earth with a flood. And the whole earth was covered so that every living thing died except for that which was on that boat because of unbelief. And Jesus is the door. And the ark is salvation. And if you don't get in the boat, if you don't say yes to God, you will spend eternity in a a, a sinner's hell, separated from God forever. And if your children don't leave Sunday school knowing that, now it can be presented in a nice way. I'm not a very, I I don't do that well. I'm a pretty uh, blunt guy. It can be presented in a different way. But if they don't leave knowing that point, then they don't know Noah's Ark. They don't know what it's about. And that means teachers need to know something about the Bible, not just about glue sticks and glitter. Well, what else? What are some other natural problems? It runs the risk of making the spiritual role models for the young people their own peers rather than the elders of the church. How many times have we talked about the problem in society that young people, when they have a problem, they're afraid to go to their parents, so they go to their peers instead. They're comfortable around their peers. Well, do you know that in a non-age segregated model, their peers are everybody. They're comfortable around everybody. Now, that doesn't mean they're they're comfortable around every single person, right? There's always people that clash and whatnot, but they're comfortable around every age group. Their peers are not necessarily their own age. And so here's what happens. Parents lose that, that what ought to be that constant drive in their hearts to be right with God and to make sure their actions are not hypocritical because, hey, my children are constantly looking up to me and my children are, are, are watching me. And the same with the elders in the church, not the position, but people that, that, that the children of this church are watching me. Am I here? Do I open my Bible? Do I sing? Do I care? What do I do when I leave here? What do I watch? Do I, am I involved in ministry? Do I care about God's people? Do I love God's people? But see, none of us have to worry about that because we send our kids off and we forget about them. And their only role models are the kids that are in their group and then the Sunday school teacher, the youth pastor. And in a lot of churches, that's terrifying. So in the early years of a child's life, the parent is busy with his own classes Trusting others to answer his child's questions. Others can answer the child's questions. Then they get older, they have deeper questions. And the parents can't answer those. They've not been preparing to answer those. They've not been thinking, I'm a spiritual role model to my children, so I better have the answers. So that when my child comes up and says, hey mom and dad, what about this whole uh, homosexual agenda? What about this whole transgender thing? Can you help me understand this from a biblical perspective? You can have answers. But if you never feel like you really need to, because you're not your child's role model anyway, 
you're undercutting yourself. So when the child has these questions, will they go to their parents? Will they go to the elders of the church and ask them? Or will they just go to their peers and see what their peers think? What did your peers' parents say? The younger years of a child's life are when parents need to be, number one, living out the deepest examples of authentic Christian life, and number two, learning enough to be ready when the children ask the tough questions. And this brings us to general parental guidance. Every day, I am assessing the spiritual state of my children. I have one daughter who is a natural leader. She is stubborn when she doesn't understand, but when she gets it, she will comply and she's solid as a rock. She's tenacious. She's curious. She's ambitious. I have another daughter who is, by the way, her twin sister. And this twin sister is a natural follower. She's very compliant about most things. Whereas her sister will resist until she understands, she will obey implicitly until she gets a bee in her bonnet about something. And then she will harden her will and there is nothing that can move her. However, as a whole, she gives up easily. She's far more apathetic. She has literal natural motivation. These are twin girls. I know my children's emotions. I know their character. I know their natures. And this is the context within which I'm going to guide their spiritual walk. But what if I carry the mindset that someone else is going to do the spiritual teaching? Can we truly say that Mr. Sunday School Teacher can pinpoint those characteristics in my children by seeing them for 35, 40 minutes, an hour and a half every Sunday and meet them where they are? Of course not. But if I slip into this mindset of sending them away to get spiritual and bringing them back again, I won't have the drive and I won't know my children as well and be able to guide them into spiritual success. How do, how does Mr. Sunday School Teacher know what's happening in that little heart of my, my children? Know what happened throughout the week? What if Mr. Sunday School Teacher comes up to me after church and says, Hey, congratulations. Both of your twin daughters just accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior today. And my mind is blown because I have one daughter who, and this is where they really are right now. I have one daughter who is, hates, she hates her sin. She knows she's a sinner. She doesn't like that she's a sinner. She knows the punishment for sin is hell. And she doesn't want that. And she hates her sin. And that's where she rests right now. I have another daughter who knows that she's a sinner, who knows the penalty is, is, is hell. And because of that, she's decided to start denying that she is a sinner. Because if she denies that she is a sinner, then she can avoid having to think about the fact that the penalty, the wages of sin is death. Now, if I sent these two little girls at five years old down to Mr. Sunday School Teacher, and Mr. Sunday School Teacher gave them a general salvation um, outline and came up and said, so-and-so, uh, both of your children accepted Jesus as their Savior today. Well, wait a minute. Now, it is possible, is it not? But wait a minute. When I left them, they were in two very different places. But do, do parents even know that? Do parents even care? 
Are, are we conditioning our parents to actually dig into our children's spiritual lives and understand their spiritual state? To ask them how they're doing spiritually. To, to guide them. To, to bring them to a place where they trust us enough to tell us what's going on in their spiritual lives so that we can help them. Do they do that or will they say, I, there's this natural gap between me and my parents. I'm just going to go to one of my friends and tell them this is what I'm struggling with spiritually and they can give me some trite advice that they read off of you know, a, a, a bracelet that they got from a Christian bookstore at some point. But what if everything they hear, I hear? What if all the teaching they receive, I receive? What if we can drive home at the end of Sunday and discuss what we learn together? What if a child can hear the preaching of the Bible and say, Dad, I heard what Pastor said today, and you know, our, our family doesn't really do that. And dad says, you know, you're right. We're not doing that like we ought to, but we ought to be. And we're going to change. And the children get to see their parents responding to the word of God. Or they're sitting all uh, under the biblical teaching together. And dad driving home says, you know what, children, we've lost focus. The word of God today, through the Holy Spirit of God, taught me some important things and, and things are going to change. And instead of the children saying, wow, what did he learn? They say, oh yeah, yeah. I can see how when the, the Bible said that, I can see that we're not doing that. You're right, Dad. And Dad leads them into obedience. What if pastor's preaching and mom and dad, of course, are absorbing the majority of that information far more than the children and then mom and dad get home and they sit down for Bible time on a Monday morning and they say, okay, children, here's the thing. You remember when pastor was speaking of this and he said this and this and this? Do you remember how we've been working on that with you? Do you remember how pastor was preaching and he said that lying is a sin? You know how you've been lying this week and we've told you that that's a problem? Do you see how pastor says that too? Do you see how the Bible says that too? You see how your pastor can work with you to help you guide your children into obedience because you believe the Bible and I believe the Bible and we're going to do what the Bible says and our children are going to see that. Now, remember, all of this can happen in any model. But do you see how an age-segregated model can make these things more difficult? I think anyone who's grown up in public schools or, or in typical churches, which is probably all of us, can relate to the simple and natural human tendency to get lazy or apathetic when it comes to our trust in qualified people to teach children. It's not that we try. It's not that we mean it. It just happens. But not if we create a model that doesn't allow you to become lazy. And parents whose children are in this church, if you don't know this, you need to know this, that if you aren't active at home teaching your children... Being their role model, leading by example, your children will spiritually starve in this church. Say, a pastor's admitting that? Yes, I am. And that's by design. Because that's not my job. It's not my job to guide your children. It's my job to guide the hearts of believers. And if your children's a believer, then, then they are going to be guided just as the rest of the church is going to be guided by my teaching but it's your job to guide the spiritual lives of your children. I teach you. I teach them. And I teach you so you can help them understand. And together your family can grow. 
And what about the natural problems beyond just the teaching? What are we teaching our children? And this is a pet peeve of mine. What are we teaching our children when we tell them that certain parts of church are, are, are only for kids or only for adults? I grew up in Awana, memorizing verses all week and re- reciting them on Wednesday nights. And I remember thinking several times when I'm younger, I just can't wait until I get old enough to, to where I don't have to do memory work anymore. And after Awana, we had Bible quizzing in our church, so the youth did memory work as well. I didn't, I wasn't a part of it. But you know what I never saw in the church? Never once. Adults memorizing. Why are we telling our kids to do something and that it's important to their Christian life if we don't do it? All that does is show them that this is something that you do as a kid and then someday when you become a real Christian, you don't have to do that anymore. When you become a grown-up Christian, you don't have to do that anymore. Wouldn't we rather have our children seeing us as a church, seeing us as adults, seeing us as parents, striving to memorize verses, memorizing with them? Hey, I'll, I'll, I'll race you to memorize this verse. Whoever can first say it word perfect. Uh, let's, let's have a competition. And of course, they'll always beat you because kids are like sponges. But whether or not you ever get that verse word perfect, you know what just happened? Your children saw you exercising yourself unto godliness and you're showing your children that memory work or Bible reading or times of prayer is not just something for kids. It is a lifelong ambition in the heart of a Christian. And so our kids go off and they play at the playground while we as parents do Bible study. So our kids go off and play while we as parents go door knocking. Could they not sit in on the Bible study? Could they not Come along with us and listen as we tell others of Christ? Could we not be demonstrating what it is to live the Christian life to them? How is this a bad plan? We would never instill in our children these concepts. That you only have to learn until a certain age and then you can stop learning. That you only have to memorize to a certain age and then you can stop memorizing. That, that this is only for kids. We would never tell them this, but is that not what we're teaching them? Might these be some of the natural problems that come with taking them away from their parents and, and segregating them as churches have done today? Now, there's one more problem, and we simply don't have time to talk about it today. I very, very rarely, as a matter of fact, this is only the second time in five and a half years of preaching that I have failed to finish the message, but we simply don't have enough time to get through this last point of this second point. I actually had a third point, a third major point as well, so we're just not going to have enough time. The theological problems. Next week, we're going to talk about the theological problems, and we'll get back into the Bible. All of this has been practical. All of this has been historical. And I, I, I the fact that we didn't crack open a Bible today is extremely regretful to me. But it's all founded upon what we talked about last week in part one, which was all biblical, which was all founded on verses. And next week, we'll dig back into the Word of God again. And we'll talk first, or finally, about the theological problems that accompany non-age-segregated ministry. Now remember, we're not saying it's unbiblical, but is it the best way to bring about what God has told us as a church to do and as families to do? Then we're going to talk about, we're going to become self-aware. 
And we're going to talk about the problems with age segregate, non-age segregated ministry, family integrated ministry, and how we can guard ourselves against some of those problems. I hope that today this has been a help to you. I hope that it has helped guide your understanding about where we stand and why we stand there. I can imagine that there might be some questions, and certainly those questions need to be answered. But by God's grace, can we not see how this model can help us? And for those of you that do homeschool, may I say this as well? If you already have the mindset of homeschooling, where you have taken your kids out of the public school environment and you have brought them into an environment where you can be controlling their education, uh, so those of you that have seen how your children have, have done very well in that and how they've socialized very well in that and how they actually interact well with adults, whereas uh, others don't, and how uh, they're not constantly under the peer pressure, and, and, and you've seen some of the benefits of and a non-age segregated approach to schooling through homeschooling? Can you just see how kind of what we're doing is taking that same philosophy and just naturally extending it into the church, which, by the way, is a place where it should have started to begin with? I pray that God will help us to understand these, to wrap our minds around this as we move forward. We'll pick up here next week and finish up. Let's close with a word of prayer.